Amen. Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning, if you will, and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. And there is no one else like him. That's what we've sung this morning. We have said in our hearts and our lives that we would worship him a hundred billion times more. We would say it, we would speak it, we would glorify him in every possible way. Because he is above and beyond everything that we could ever know. And we have a God who is constantly in charge. Even when the circumstances look difficult, even when it looks like uh, Satan and his armies are making progress against the kingdom, guess what? God is still in charge. There's no doubt. The gospel is still going forth. The gospel always triumphs. And that's what I want you to hear today as we come together. I want you to know that when you leave this place... The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is victorious. And because of that, you can live in a spirit of victory as well. No matter what comes your way. I mean, look at the book of Acts. And some of you say, well, we have been looking at the book of Acts. Seems like you've been on this forever already. When are we going to finish? There are 28 chapters and we're just now in chapter 7. Well, we got to keep going because obviously we haven't gotten it yet. All right? Dr. Luke just keeps going to remind us. That the gospel cannot be stopped. That when the gospel is empowered by the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in a believer's life, he, she cannot be stopped by anything that Satan would throw at them. Nothing. And we've already seen that there are threats to the gospel in the book of Acts. You, you see all kinds of threats. You, you've seen, uh, obviously, some persecution that's already come. We're going to talk about much more today. And much uh, more intense persecution that comes against those early believers. You've seen how the church was having to deal with issues, uh, just different topics that were that would threaten the very existence of the church or the unity of the church. And each and every time, what happens? The Holy Spirit empowers the people of God. The gospel somehow advances, no matter what comes against it. And the church and the kingdom continues just to move on because the gospel always triumphs. I want you to see again this morning as we look in Acts chapter 7. Now, I want to bring you up to speed of where we are because we have moved through a lot of verses since the last time we met together. Last time, we talked about how God selected servants within the church to be able to minister so that the church could take care of its widows in particular, the most vulnerable of society, and thus the church could continue to grow. And we're told that there were seven who were chosen to minister in this way. They were individuals who waited tables. There were individuals who were just there to serve. Now, we're told that they were of good reputation. They were full of the Holy Spirit. They were full of wisdom. And one of those guys that had been selected, his name was Stephen. And we're especially told that Stephen was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He, he singled out to remind us that this one in particular was full of uh, power of the Holy Spirit and he was full of faith. He believed God. And that individual took not only his responsibility to serve tables seriously, he decided it was his responsibility to talk to people about Christ, to tell people about Jesus. So the Bible tells us that he went into these different synagogues. 
these Greek-speaking synagogues, because he was of the Greek-speaking sect of the Jewish believers, he went into those synagogues and he began to present Jesus to them. Now, according to the Jewish Talmud, there were a lot of these synagogues. Some believe that there were like 480 synagogues altogether in the Jerusalem area. That might be kind of exaggerated, but I just want you to know there are a lot of places that those Jews gathered in order to worship the Yahweh God. And it was in those Greek-speaking synagogues that Stephen found a voice. He began to talk to them about the Messiah, that Jesus was the promised one. He was the Christ. He was the anointed one. You could imagine, even then, there was pushback. There was hostility. People questioned Stephen, said, What do you mean this Jesus is the Messiah? And before you know it, quite a stir had been made in this one particular synagogue. And the scripture teaches us that they began to bring false accusations against Stephen. They began to charge him with blasphemy. They began to charge him with departing from the traditions of old. Before you know it, he was seized in a very similar manner as his master. Because I want you to hear this. The life of the disciple will mirror the life of the master. And just as you are a disciple of Christ, I want you to hear this clearly, that your life should mirror the life of your Lord, the life of your master. And Stephen here, He's preaching the gospel. He's telling them about the good news of Jesus. And he is seized. And he is brought before the great council, the Sanhedrin. Oh, it was only a couple years or so that his master had stood in the same place. In the great hall of polished stones where the 71 judges would sit in a semicircle to bring their decisions to bear. Stephen would stand there just as Jesus had. Behind him would have been lawyers. There would have been people just to witness and see what the trial was going to bring. I believe personally that, the, that this one that we call Saul was in that audience, probably right behind him as an associate of the Sanhedrin. And Stephen would give his defense. We don't have time, I don't think, this morning to read all of the defense. I would encourage you to go and begin in chapter 1 of, I mean, in chapter 7, verse 1, and look through his defense. He basically comes and says, guys, I want to give you a history lesson. Let's walk down memory lane just for a few moments. Let's talk about Abraham. Let's talk about the faith that he had and what God promised him. Let's talk about Moses. Let's talk about Joseph. Let's talk about the tabernacle and how it was with with men. The presence of God was with men. And let me tell you about the prophets. Oh, guys, may I remind you that you are a stiff-necked people, stubborn. All of history shows that we have constantly gone against God. And you, you've killed his prophets You've killed the very tabernacle of God. That is Jesus himself, the very presence of God among you. You killed that prophet as well. You can imagine where this is going, right? Because all of a sudden, when he turns this history lesson back toward them and reminds them of their rebellion, 
it says that they react very violently. And thus we pick up the story in verse 54 of chapter 7. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses lay down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. It's one of the most gripping passages, I think, that you'll read in the New Testament. Of this Stephen, who was nothing more than a servant of God. Listen, an ordinary individual in many ways. You say, ordinary? How do you say ordinary when you read his life? I just want you to know that he's flesh and blood like you and I. God had chosen him to be a servant. God had chosen him to work in the church to bring forth some type of resolution to problems. He was, in many ways, a deacon. And he was one who just shared his faith readily as he had the opportunity. But again, as he turned the conversation back to that early Supreme Court of, of Judaism, as he turned his finger back toward them, they reacted violently. Again, the scripture says that when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. The word means to be sawn in two or to take a saw and to cut it in half. So the idea is that their hearts were cut in two. You could imagine because here they are guilty. You and I We've probably felt some type, of, uh, some type of conviction or work in our lives because we've done things that we were guilty of, right? Okay, obviously you're guilty of lying. <laughs> Most all of you except about two. So at the end of this message, there's an altar here. There's one there in the gathering. So you can just go do whatever you need to do to get right with God, all right? Just remind yourself of that at the end of this invitation. Yes. We've had moments where we felt like we were cut to the heart, that our heart was somehow cut in two. And that's good as long as we respond with repentance. And that's good as long as we confess what we've done and we get our relationship with God right. But that's not what they did. They knew they were guilty and they were cut to the heart. But it says they gnashed at him with their teeth. You can just sense the anger, right? 
You and I, we've probably been angry before. How many of you got kids or grandkids? No, never mind. Grandkids, you never get mad. How many of you got kids? Yeah. So you've nursed your treats before? You sure have. Look, I, I, I had a principal at my middle school. That's the way he talked all the time. Always. You know what I'm talking. Yeah, some of you, you're convicted now. They gnashed their teeth because they were so mad. Stephen responds with a sense of peace. As a matter of fact, if you look toward the end of chapter 6, it says that when he stands before them, it's like the face of an angel that they see. This peace, this comfort. They're gnashing their teeth. They are responding with anger but he is still full of the Holy Spirit. And he gazes into heaven. He sees the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I, I see the, the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It says that that set them off in verse 57. I bet it did. I bet it did. I bet it specifically set off a guy named Caiaphas. Because we're told that some two years before when the master... When the Lord stood before them, he had looked at Caiaphas and he had said this to him. He said, in the same place, he said, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now. You have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he is deserving death. Matthew chapter 26, verses 64 through 66. So just two years before, so Caiaphas is interviewing Jesus. And again, Jesus has false accusations brought against him. And now Stephen has false accusations brought against him. Notice again the similarity. And Caiaphas is asking him, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, one of these days you're going to see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power. So here's Stephen looking into heaven saying, hey, there's Jesus. He's at the right hand of God. Oh, I bet Caiaphas, I bet Caiaphas had a flashback for a moment. Because just as Jesus had promised that one day, and it is a day in the future, obviously, but one day that Caiaphas and all who would see him sitting in that place of power, Stephen's giving him a little glimpse, reminding him that Jesus has authority. And the scripture says, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. Now, this, to me, is one of the most childish-looking things you could ever imagine. I mean, it, it is almost comical if it had not been such a tragic, consequential moment. But here they are. They cry out with a loud voice. They stop their ears. I mean, look at, think, you, again, you've seen children do this, right? Or something. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Don't say that anymore. Or, you know, I say children do that. You and I have done that probably before as parents, right? Try it. It works every now and then. 
Again, it would be almost comical if it were not so tragic and so consequential to the life of Stephen, to the life of the early church. They said, we don't want to hear this. And they began to cry out with a loud voice. And they all rushed at him at one time to take him to the city's edge. I do not believe that these 71 had the authority to pass the death penalty on Stephen, just as they did not have the authority to pass the death sentence on Jesus. But this is a vigilante type of justice that breaks out. This is just in their emotion. They decide that they will destroy, they will kill this Stephen. So they drag him to the edge of the city, which was required by law. They take him perhaps to the rock of execution. Ten to twelve foot drop that they would use. They would push the individual off that cliff. Typically, they would roll like a boulder upon him first, and then the witnesses would begin the tossing of the stones. But in this case, it seems that it was such a rushed, hurried type of moment that they probably do cast him off that 10 to 12 foot cliff. But then they begin. Oh, it says that some of them take their outer garments off so that they can throw more easily. And they take those outer garments and they lay them there at the feet of this guy named Saul. We'll come back to him later. The witnesses would have begun. The witnesses had to throw the first stones. And little by little, each stone would impact Stephen. It would be a long and an agonizing death. And yet, look at what, Jesus, look at what Stephen says. Verse 59, it says, they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It says he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Just as a disciple's life will mirror the life of his master, so a disciple's death can and should mirror the death of his master. You cannot help but see the similarities. Stephen said, receive my spirit. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? Father, into thy hands I commit, I commend my spirit. Stephen kneeling as each stone was impacting him. Stephen prayed, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And it was Dr. Luke. It was Dr. Luke in his gospel that recorded the words of Jesus that said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen. Demonstrating the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ even 
in his death. It says that he fell asleep. This doesn't sound like a victorious passage, does it? Not when you read through it to begin with. It's the first martyr that you have recorded in the church life. It doesn't sound like victory. How could you entitle, Reggie, the message about the gospel always triumphs? And then read something so tragic as this. Because I want to remind you that the gospel triumphed that day in the life of Stephen and in the death of Stephen. Because the, li- the gospel always triumphs. The gospel triumphs over the persecuted. Those who are persecuted, those who are receiving the persecution, they need to understand, we need to understand that the gospel is always victorious for those of us who follow that path who see these things happen in our lives. Oh, he was victorious. Look at the way he lived. Look at the way he died. He died knowing that the gospel was victorious over all things. He died that way. I I believe he knew that there was something more than this world. I believe he understood eternal life and had absolute confidence and assurance in it. That's the reason he could stand there being pelted by stones and still cry out to the Lord Jesus because he knew that the Lord Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father because the gospel was going to triumph one way or the other. He had just given testimony to the good news and now he was about to figure out the reality of the good news as God brought him into his presence. So he said, well, it says he fell asleep. Folks, that's just a euphemism. We don't sleep when we die. Not some soul sleep. What that means is that he passed away. The the writers of Scripture would use the word sleep just like we use the words passed on, maybe. Like the person passed on. Because we don't want to say they died. We try to soften it just a little bit. He died... But I believe he immediately was in the presence of Jesus. I want to come back to that in just a moment. But I'll remind you that all of those who have been persecuted, all of those who even have given their lives on behalf of Christ, that all of them have received a victory through the good news of Jesus. All of them have. Now, there is persecution that breaks out. And it says that most of the persecution will be uh, directed toward the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jewish believers of the day. It says most of them will have to leave Jerusalem. Uh, The apostles stay. They stay there. But the apostles are still going to be persecuted. I, I went through just making some notes again this week about some of that persecution. James... The great son of Zebedee. We're told in Acts chapter 12 that Herod Agrippa I beheads him. Philip, according to tradition, the disciple Philip, that is, scourged, imprisoned, crucified in Heliopolis in Phrygia. 
Matthew, the disciple, was run through with a spear, according to tradition, in the city of Nadaba in the country of Ethiopia. James the less, beaten and stoned by Jewish detractors. Andrew, crucified on a cross, the two ends fixed transversely on the ground. Judas Thaddeus, beaten to death with a club and beheaded. Bartholomew, flayed alive and crucified. Thomas, thrust through with a spear. Simon the zealot, crucified, or, or some say even sawn in half. Matthias, stoned and beheaded in Jerusalem. Peter, killed under the reign of Nero. Tradition again says that he was crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. And John, while not martyred, was exiled on the island of Patmos, was persecuted in many different ways for his faith. I give you all that to remind you that everyone faced the persecution that came to them Many faced death itself. Why? Because they believed the gospel triumphed over everything, even their lives and their death. Somehow along the way, somehow along the way, they must have remembered the words of Jesus. Where Jesus said, Do not fear the one who can kill the body, but rather fear or submit to the one that has the authority, the power over the soul itself. Think about those words of Jesus for a moment. I mean, they don't sound too comforting, do they? Jesus basically told his disciples, he said to them, hey, don't worry about it, all they can do is kill you. I mean, that's what he said. You and I would have been there like, hold on, folks. I need a book called The Best Life Now. I've got to be able to... Jesus said, all they can do is kill you. That's all. Nothing else. So that's the reason each and every one of the disciples and so many of the early believers, they stood there just like Stephen because they knew the gospel was victorious over all. Because they knew they had something better. Hey, the scripture says that Jesus was standing. Now some make... Great significance of that. I think there's significance in it. Some would debate me on that. That's fine. They're wrong. But there's... He, he's standing, not sitting like you're usually talking about. Why is he standing? Because I believe that the Lord Jesus was right there saying, Come on, Stephen. Come on. You about got this. The victory is yours, my friend. Remember, Stephen's name means crown. You're about to get your crown. You're about to know what it's like to be truly Stephen. You come on. And I'm going to tell you, the Lord Jesus stands there for us as well. And no matter what comes our way, whether we die through persecution or we die in some natural way, the Lord Jesus is there and the gospel always triumphs over death itself. I believe that or I would not preach each and every week. I was reminded even a few moments ago as we here in the sanctuary were singing that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Dale and I stood in a room this week with an individual that was going through very difficult times. And what was he singing, Dale? What a friend we have in Jesus. Sweet, sweet spirit. Because somehow, in some way, 
He was being reminded, I think, by the Holy Spirit, by the, by the Lord himself, of the victory that he had even here in these dire moments. The gospel always triumphs. Triumphs over everything. It triumphs over the persecuted. Those of us who are persecuted, it triumphs over the persecutor. I'm not going to spend long here because we're going to come back to it in Acts chapter 9. But I want you to see that the gospel is the good news. It triumphs over a council that will somehow stand against it. It will triumph over, really, in many ways, all opposition, every way, the opposition that will come. And in some ways, it will lead the enemies to Christ. Remember those on the council, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. There were those who had come to faith. But all oh, this one named Saul. The drama has continued in the book of Acts, and now from stage right enters Saul very suddenly. You're not told much about him. You're told all that he's just there. And they're placing the outward garments at his feet. He's assenting to the death. I think at the very least he was an associate of the Sanhedrin. He was used by them. But I will tell you, frankly, you could call him a terrorist. Strong language, but Chuck Swindoll uses it. Unfortunately, we've seen so many terrorists today. Even what happened in New Zealand this week was a tragedy. It should be called out for what it is, an act of hate, a satanic-inspired attack. We should always call those things out. But Paul, guess what? Or Saul, I should say, he was a terrorist. You don't believe me? Look again. It says, chapter 8, well, verse 1, it says he was consenting to the death in verse 3, it said, He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He would say later on in chapter 26 of this book, he'll say that I cast my vote to execute people. But something happened. On the road to Damascus, as we'll look at in a few weeks, something happened. Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Because look, when you persecute the church, you're persecuting Jesus himself. Why do you persecute me? Why are you coming at me? Something happened so extraordinarily in Saul's life and the gospel changes him. And later on, the apostle Paul will write and he'll say, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, and I obtained mercy because I did it, I, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. You and I should never forget the gospel is powerful enough to save anybody and everybody. No matter what the past looks like, no matter what the present seems to be in their lives. If Jesus can get a hold of a guy named Saul, he can get a hold of you and he can get a hold of our grandkids and he can get a hold of our friends. And he can get a hold of people in other nations. He can get a hold of anybody and everybody through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
because the gospel triumphs. Oh, Paul thought about that moment. Acts chapter 22, verse 20. He'll talk about, I was there when they martyred Stephen. He'll think about it. I'm not sure if the example of Stephen wouldn't have helped, at least helped, spur him on to take the persecution that came in his life. Oh, there was a lot. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us about it. He was stoned at one point. Just think of this. He's on the other end of that tragic type of stoning, left for dead in Lystra. But he'll write in Colossians 1, 24 that we read last week on Sunday night church. He said, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. <laughs> because the gospel triumphs. It triumphs over the persecuted. It triumphs over the persecutor. And it triumphs over persecution itself. Oh, don't miss this. It says in chapter 8, verse 1 again, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So because of the intense persecution, they have to leave Jerusalem. That's okay. Isn't it? It's okay. Because they scatter out. And it says they go to Judea and Samaria. Whoa, Samaria! Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What did he, Jesus say? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So God says... I know you're being persecuted, but don't worry. All we're doing is launching phase two now. You've been in Jerusalem, Judea. I got you another mission. I told you I was going to do this. Samaria. I'm going to take the persecution. I'm going to use it. Because scattered people scatter the word. And as these scattered people go to Samaria, they scatter the word. The Jewish leadership, they try to stamp out the movement but what they do is contribute to the advancement of the kingdom. Don't you love it when God does things like that? The enemy thinks he's won. And God says, oh, no, no, no. Actually, I'm going to use that, what you just did. Tertullian, early church theologian, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He would take the persecution. God's plan was accomplished and achieved. Why? Because God's ultimate plan, listen to me, listen to me closely. God's ultimate plan will never be thwarted. There is nothing, nowhere, anybody, no power, zilch that can stop the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. And what our God can do is to take that which was meant to be evil and make it for something that is good. Ask Joseph. Ask, ask Jehoshaphat. Some of you say, ooh, Jehoshaphat, right here at the end. You're going to introduce him at the end of your message? Oh, I love Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles chapter 20. He's about ready for battle. He's facing the greatest multitude that he could imagine. The troops of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, they have gathered to fight against him. He prays to God. He seeks God. The prophet says, hey, don't worry about this. You stand still and you see the salvation of God. <coughs> they fight each other. His enemies do eventually destroying one another. They go out into that valley and all they see spoils. Spoils of war. And for three days they pick up resources. 
of the enemy that they never had to fight. And you know what Jehoshaphat said? He said, we, we got we to name this valley. You know what we're going to name this valley? We're going to name this the Valley of Barakah, which means the Valley of Blessing. Because God has turned our demise into blessing. God has turned our defeat into victory. It is the valley. Barakah. I want you to know that when I read Acts chapter 8 here in those first few verses, it just reminds me they were in the valley of Barakah. They might call it Samaria, but they had just found the blessing. God had taken what seemed like defeat, and he had brought victory. And I'm going to tell you that God can take what seems like defeat in your life, and he can bring victory through it. He can use it for his good, for his glory, and for your benefit. Because if he can take the cross and redeem it, he can redeem anything and everything. The cross, remember, is supposed to be the death of the carpenter. The death, in Satan's mind, the death of his arch enemy, the Son of God. And yet, what did God do? He took the cross and the death, and he gave us a way of redemption and forgiveness. Because if our God can do that and bring forth victory through the resurrection, our God can take anything that comes in our lives, and he can redeem it and purpose it for his plan. Because the gospel triumphs the good news. Nothing's going to stop it. It will keep going forth. Why? Because nothing can stop God. The gospel triumphed over the persecuted. Stephen was able to stand in faith and know that there was something better that was to come. The gospel triumphed over the persecutor, Paul, or Saul, eventually bringing him into the kingdom and using him as the greatest missionary outside of the Lord Jesus here on this earth. Because the gospel triumphed over the persecution itself. And God used it for his glory and for the church's good. The gospel triumphs over everything. You hear it this morning. You believe it this morning. And you live it when you go from this place. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessed word. Thank you for the empowerment that you give me to share it and preach. Thank you for people who listen and respond. And God, this morning, during this moment of invitation and commitment, May we commit ourselves to you, whether we come forward physically or whether we're there in our pews, whatever it is. May we commit ourselves to this word. May we believe it. May we trust it. May we live it. May we proclaim it. And God, if there's one person in here that, Lord, they think they're too bad to be saved, they think they're too good to be saved, God, I pray you'd show them right who they are that there's no one out of your reach and there's no one that is 
too worthy, Lord, because all of us have fallen short of your glory. All of us, well, all of us have sinned and rebelled. And I pray that that one individual will see that this morning and that they would come and they'd give their lives to you. And again, for those of us who are saved, God, just help us to keep living faithfully. Help us keep believing that the gospel triumphs. May we see it in our lives. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?